danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 376 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. From Laughlin, Nevada, this is Carlos Welch. And from White Plains, New York, this is Dan Shore. Well, hi, Dan. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, Dan, you are, I guess, most, uh, most recently, you are the author of The Final Table. Uh, and also a, um, actually, I'll, I'll probably get it wrong. Why don't you just tell us what your day job is? Sure. Well, I started my career as a sex crimes prosecutor in New York, and now I have my own practice with a few other individuals where we do independent private sector sexual misconduct and harassment dis- discrimination investigations with either educational institutions or um, private sector entities, nonprofits. So I'm an investigator, former prosecutor, and also a writer. And is there any crossover uh, between, I mean, I assume poker enthusiasts belong somewhere on that list as well? Yes, I'm a long time player of poker. Um, it's a major part of my non-professional life is playing with friends, playing in tournaments, and I really enjoy it. And I've had some interesting experiences along the way playing, which have been really rewarding and fascinating. What's, what's like the poker origin story for you? You know, my poker origin story is so stereotypical that it's almost embarrassing. I never played until 2003, and then I was watching ESPN and saw the World Series of Poker and Chris Moneymaker win the whole tournament. And I was just like, wow, you know, I didn't really know about poker. I was around late 20s at the time, and I was like, this is fascinating. I need to learn about this. And at the same time, all my friends started getting into poker. We started getting on poker stars and playing all the time and going to casinos and tournaments and traveling. And it just became a major part of our lives very quickly. And for those of us who were around that time period, you know, we call it the poker boom. And I got swept up in it and I'm still swept up in it. <laughs> uh, and is there any overlap that you see with, with your professional? I mean, I, I don't mean in like the networking sense of like, you know, I, I meet people in, in poker games become clients or something like that, but just sort of like poker skills that end up being useful to you in your professional life. Absolutely. I think one, one of the major things that fascinates me about poker is that there's so much of it that overlaps with other parts of life. And whether it's politics or personal relationships or business interactions, there's so much that's involved with, you know, presenting yourself, telling a story. Is that story accurate? Is the other person telling an accurate story, bluffing, reading bluffs? And as an investigator and a prosecutor, so much of my job is reading individuals, determining credibility, determining what other information I'm missing, making decisions based on incomplete information. And all of those things are such fundamental parts of playing poker that I see an overlap all the time. And that's always really interesting to see those comparisons. There's a thing, I guess I got this from um, Zach Elwood's Poker Tales 
books, although it does kind of accord with, with my poker experience, that um, people in general are, are fairly reluctant to lie. So someone might say something like, uh, you know, I don't have a full house when they actually have quads or something like that. <laughs> so they're sort of like, they're, they're, they're trying to mislead you by suggesting they don't have a strong hand, but but they're reluctant to just out and out lie. If you say, do you have aces? And they do have aces, they won't just say no. You know, they'll say, I don't know, or, or something like that. Um, do you find that that sort of thing is, is true in like a, a deposition or, or a interrogation or something? Like, are you, um, it, it, are we just, it, do you find that, that same kind of thing where, where people are reluctant to just kind of like outright lie? Well, in my job, people lie to me all the time because I'm investigating things where one person says that something happened and the person they're accusing when I interview them is very often saying, no, that did not happen. And the other person's not telling the truth. Like so they could be saying like, I don't recall, or I don't remember it going down exactly that way. Or like, that's that, the kind of thing I have in mind. Like, do, do Yeah, you- that does happen. There are certainly a lot of cases where there's overlap, different perceptions of what happened and different recollections in good faith. But I also see a lot of people who do tell things that are just contradictory to what someone else said. And when I was a criminal prosecutor, you'd see witnesses swear to tell the truth on the Bible in court, and then one witness will say one thing and the next witness will say something completely different. But I know what you mean. People, I think most people want to feel like they're being honest. They want to believe that they're telling a truth that's accurate, and they may kind of spin things or use phrasing, like you said before, to make it not an outright lie. And that's definitely something to pick up on when you're trying to see if someone's telling you the truth. Now, how does, how does or where does writing fit into uh into all this how did you get interested in that i've always wanted to be a writer when i was a child my mother was a high school english teacher and would bring home books for me to read and i was always interested in that and i always thought fiction was really an interesting way to tell a story because you can combine different elements and for me being able to be an avid poker player and also have this experience as a prosecutor and an investigator and having traveled internationally, fiction allowed me to combine all that into certain characters and plot lines in a way that was really interesting to me and also fun and creative. So it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And I was able to channel all these little experiences I've had into one book that comes together to tell a story with a bunch of different characters involved in poker, involved in international politics and other things. But it's definitely something I've wanted to do for a long time and it's exciting to have it out there. Well, I appreciate seeing poker players interested in, in fiction. You know, I think there's, uh, at least on my like Twitter feed of, of professional poker players, there's tremendous interest in reading like nonfiction books and, and people always want the things that they're reading to have this very direct applicability of, you know, they'll read like, um, I wanted to say Talib Kweli, but that's not his name. <laughs> um, the, the Black Nassim. Swan. Yeah, Nassim Talib. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they'll read like that, that sort of thing that has like kind of a, a very obvious uh, and direct applicability to, to poker. But um, I feel like people can get a lot out of uh, reading fiction as well in ways that are maybe a little bit less tangible, but um, useful both to maybe be a better poker player, but also to sort of be a better uh, person in general. Yeah, it's definitely true that I think a lot of people just read nonfiction. They're not reading fiction. For me, one thing that I thought was interesting in writing this book was I incorporated real poker hands and real poker analysis into a fictional story. I hadn't seen that done that way before. I mean, maybe it has been done before, but I read a lot of fiction and I read a lot of nonfiction also. But for fiction, I thought 
whenever you see a poker player, whether it's in a movie like Rounders or in some other fictional setting, there are always these great, great poker players who really can read everyone perfectly and they're always knowing what to do. And I thought it'd be more interesting to show a real person who is really good, but can also make mistakes, also has a lot of trouble at times, can um, worry about bad beats and putting bad beats on other people. I feel like that's a side of poker that you don't get to see in fictional narratives, the, the real ups and downs and swings that people experience. How do you think about um, including something like like poker strategy in, in the book, uh, where presumably you're expecting a fair number of readers who are either like very amateurish poker players or not really poker players. Like that's not the, the, the poker is not their source of interest in in the book. Um, how do you think about like conveying that information in a way that will be interesting to people who are not intrinsically interested in poker? That was one thing I was worried about, and I've had a very good reaction from people. A lot of people who've read it don't know poker at all. And I wanted the poker to be realistic enough that real serious poker players would find it realistic. They wouldn't say, oh, that would never happen that way. But at the same time, people who don't know poker and don't like poker necessarily would still find it interesting. So I tried to balance that, and the reaction has been really positive. So what, what I did is I had the language, the terms are really accurate as far as I as far as I've been told by poker players, and I certainly based it on experiences I've had, but I also made understanding all the terms isn't essential to understand the plot, the plot lines. And I, I tried to strike a balance. One of the inspirations for how to strike that balance to me was the show Billions. If you watch the show Billions, they talk about all these complex financial deals that I know nothing about. So they're using all this language about investments and things like that. I don't understand anything about what they're talking about, but I do like the show and I understand the general plot lines and I love the characters and I can follow it. So I tried to have a similar line in my book final table where if you know poker you'll appreciate the realistic depiction of poker but it's not essential to understand everything and so that's how i tried to show it i feel like the the time I, i've seen most of billions i think i have not seen them some of the more recent episodes but um the times that, that they've put poker on the show, and I mean, not coincidentally, Brian Koppelman being one of the, yep. the creators, you know, they've also done a very good job of showing poker that is like realistic for a serious poker player. That sort of feels like that. I mean, that is both how a rail hand would go down, and it's actually an interesting hand where you, know, you get something like um, the the Mel Brooks movie or no, Mel Gibson movie. <laughs> Um, where you know the, the sort of dramatic moment is when he draws to quads in you know in, right. in a key hand or something, which is like not you know it's just strategically it's not an interesting hand at all. Um, yeah, I feel like that's right. like a, a difficult balance to strike between like what what's dramatic for a serious poker player versus what's dramatic for an amateurish poker player. Right, and I've seen that there was a James Bond movie that dealt with poker, and there were other movies like that where it's like right one person has quads, one has a straight flush. And the better player has the straight flush over the quads <laughs> that's, because that's what poker skill is. <laughs> right, but it seems like the better player always has the better hand in those stories. So I tried to show situations where no, the better player doesn't always have the better hand. It's about determining bet size. It's about bluffing. It's about reading bluffs. It's about doing all the things that we all do as poker players that you don't often see depicted in fiction. And I also tried to show in the book how the same characters are dealing with those tactics in other situations, whether it's politics or business or interpersonal relationships, because they it is the same type of thinking, reading people, making decisions under a lot of stress with limited information. It's something we do all the time, and it's very challenging. 
So a couple of the uh, real life experiences that uh, you included in the book sound pretty interesting to, to have you recount here. Um, the one that jumped out at me the most was was playing poker in North Korea. Yeah, so I was in a casino in North Korea. wasn't There wasn't poker. It was other games. They had okay. blackjack. They had some other games. But I think it is really significant, and I use it as an inspiration in this book because the book depicts an international tournament in a rogue nation. And in describing the casino and the layout, I used what I saw in North Korea as part of the description there. I was living in Beijing for a year, teaching at a law school there, and I got to travel into North Korea with a group from Beijing and it's obviously a very restricted closed off society very unlike any place I've ever been it's a huge at the time Kim Jong-il was the leader and it's a huge cult where people are indoctrinated and there's no freedom and you're walking around there seeing everything is about the leadership and propaganda and it's very scary very disturbing but also eye-opening about what is it what's it really like inside a country like this that not many people get to see so part of that was they had this small casino where westerners can go and i i, I even took a few of the chips from there because i thought this is something that i don't think many people get access to but just the idea of you're in this world where the locals aren't part of this casino but it's for foreigners and they can come in and it's controversial about whether it's ethical to do so. That's one of the things I dealt with in my book, where there's this rogue nation with a high-stakes poker tournament, but there's a lot of controversy about whether people should participate in it. So I use that experience to describe this in the book. Yeah, I'd be paranoid about getting cheated in a place <laughs> like that. I mean, like, because, and that's true of any, any, any time I travel, poker is a little bit different but as far as like um casinos with like like slot machines and and all these sort of things they they have control about over how often those things pay out and um i would just assume that you just don't win in north korea ever i definitely was not concerned about that issue because i was concerned about so much else you know like <laughs> yeah. like, like if you if you were if you were going to take my money that that's the least of my problems at that point so i i definitely agree with you that it's probably something that you just have to say okay this is just the situation it is what it is and i'm not going to be able to stop that yeah i didn't even know that uh that north korea had and you said the casinos were specifically for westerners yeah, so there were a couple of Western hotels in Pyongyang, and in the basement of one of them, they had a very small casino that is not open to the public, that um, people who are brought in on these tours from Beijing can go to while they're staying at this hotel. It was, um, and we, we did not know, we were, at least I did not know we were going there. We were just brought there, and it was a very... It was a surreal experience in the middle of a lot of surreal experiences to say, well, I'm in this closed off country that's surrounded by propaganda that is clearly the least westernized country, least open. And then all of a sudden there's a casino where we're there with like chips that say DPRK on them or whatever it said on them. It's been a while now. I have them in my house. I have to get them and see what they said exactly. But they were branded with North Korea and it was definitely a disturbing and interesting experience and i tried to bring the things that i saw firsthand into the novel that i wrote yeah because i i did know that south korea had um i, I think a, a similar setup where like i think south korean citizens can't 
play there. It's, it's kind of like for U.S. service members primarily, which does sort of strike me as the right way to do casinos, where like you get a lot of the upsides of like kind of like having the revenue and things without a lot of the downsides of like actually having your population gambling. Yeah, when I was when so when I was in I lived in China for a year and I I would play poker with people who lived there, but we would just have to do it in either where we lived or. It maybe we'd get a table in the corner of a bar and, and bring out some chips and cards and play, but there were no casinos there. And you know, I, I played at one point in the, the first Poker Stars China Poker Open, and that was held in Macau, which is controlled by China, but not part of mainland China because they don't have gambling like that in mainland China. How has the, um, the, the, the process of writing the book i mean i assume this is like the first uh the first novel that you've written yes the first one i've had published yes okay but you say you've you've like drafted other ones yeah i've been writing my whole life but this is the first time that i've got taken it far enough to have a novel published so what was what was different this time like how did you get across the finish line with this one i i think part of it was the story was more compelling than things i've written in the past and i was able to combine a lot of realistic things that happened to me I, when earlier in my life i think and that, there's nothing wrong with this but i think i was using more of my all writing is imagination but i think that i was taking characters and scenes that were almost totally based on imagination and this is the the thing that i wrote that even though it's a fictional story so much of it is based on things that i've actually seen i've actually experienced or people i've spoken with and interviewed have told me they experienced and i thought that brought a different character to it that it was it's based on truth and therefore it rings true and it's a definitely a dramatic story that has a lot of things that aren't exactly how things happen in real life but it is based on real events and how things play out so i think that was helpful in actually writing it getting a publisher to back it and publish it what went into the the like how involved were you in the publishing i mean did you just sort of turn over a manuscript to them or, or what did you need to do from your end i had a draft that i i submitted to the um and it, it got to the publisher which is spark press who's been great to work with and th there was then there was a very intense editing process they had copy editors and other reviewers who helped rewrite parts of it and help strengthen the language in a major way and i learned so much of that process so it was about a year-long process after I connected with them where it was being revised with you know they were giving me suggestions and i was revising it so that was the process that happened after i um you know they agreed to publish it and i, I learned as i said i learned so much from that process of editing revising it took me about a year to write it beforehand and then there was a year of editing it after how do you find time for it? I mean, it sounds like you have a fairly demanding uh, day job. Uh, you're also playing poker. Um, it sounds like, you know, somewhat seriously. Um, where, where does all this time come from? Well, the bulk of what I wrote, I started in early 2019 and I finished in early 2020. Uh -huh. And back, back then, this was obviously before COVID, I was traveling a lot for work. And I was often on planes, I was on trains, and I would be visiting a client site to do interviews, and I would be alone. I'm married with two little kids, which take up a lot of time, but there were a lot of times where I was just in a hotel room in some strange city by myself for like a few days in between interviews, and I, I used that time to write a lot. Now, it's a different world without that travel, so I, I have to find other ways to find time to write, but back then, 
that that's how I did it. Whenever there was any downtime or time traveling, I was like, if I wasn't working, I was like, okay, I'm going to write now. I'm going to, I'm going to force myself to do a little bit each day. I thought that was really important to say every day I'm going to write a certain amount and I'm not going to not write. Even if what I write is not good and I need to scrap it after, I need to at least write every day because once you stop writing, there's always an excuse to not write. Mm. You'd be like, oh, I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. But if you make it like, no, I have to do it every day. That helped me a lot. I think you, you, the story kind of like falls out of your head too, or you lose. Um, you're, you're just not kind of in, in in the headspace that like I think it's harder to get started again. Uh, in my own experience of, of writing, anyway, you know, if, once you've taken a few days off, your head's just like not in it in the same way, and you take some time to like get back into it. Right, absolutely. And I and one thing that I one thing that worked for me, I don't know if this would work for everybody, is I always tried to stop when I still had something else I wanted to write. Because then I always knew what I was going to do first the next day. And I was never starting the next day with, okay, what do I write now? So I was always like, okay, there's one more thing that I want to write about. That's what I'm going to do first thing tomorrow. And then I, I automatically have a way to start and get the juices flowing. So some people may disagree with that and think once it's in your head, you got to get it out on paper. But I always liked knowing how I was starting the next day. Were there, maybe you just had a head start because your mom was an English teacher, but um, were there like Probably. particular writing resources or something that you found uh, or have, have found uh, helpful in, in improving as a writer? I was an English major in college and just reading a lot, constantly reading, you know, seeing how other people are writing, getting, seeing what you like, what you don't like. I think all of, I think that's the biggest teacher for me is just, is reading and identifying what's good, what's not good for you. You know, other people may disagree. And even things that aren't writing, a movie, a television show, I'm always very conscious of story arcs and structure and characters and, okay, how are they developing this? Is this something that's working that's not working? And I've been conscious of that for a long time. So I've definitely come to the point where there are certain things I think work and don't work. And I also had some really helpful beta readers who read over early drafts of my book. Some were family, some were friends, some were poker players, some were not. And I had them tell me, you know, what do you think works, doesn't work. And I got some very helpful suggestions about things that I thought worked that didn't and ideas to make things better. So that was a major part of the writing process also. I like the, um, the hack that you mentioned about saving something uh, for next time so you know where you start. But did you ever, like, have something really good that you wanted to start back with? And then when you started back, you were <laughs> like, oh, shit, I forgot where I was going. Well... It didn't happen that way because sometimes what I'll do is I'll write down like I won't write it out, but I'll take notes. Ah. So I'll say like I'll put bullet points on like what I'm going to write next or if there's a key line, I'm, I'll write that down. And so I always had that kind of written down and I also outlined a lot beforehand. So I did. I don't think I ever then forgot what I was going to write. I, I'm really big into outlining. Some writers just, you know, write and they see where it goes. I'm really big on outlining scenes, outlining dialogue, chapters, and then I have a basis of where I'm going from there. Gotcha. Makes sense. Uh, this is a bit of a hard left turn here, but I'm curious, um, how actively do you find yourself like thinking in terms of game theory, uh, I mean, e either with your job now or maybe it's even more applicable when you're a prosecutor? Um, yeah, I mean, do, do you find yourself like actively thinking in those terms or strategizing in those terms? I, I I probably see things in those terms too much because I, 
you know, I, I, I remember even when I went to law school, taking a law and economics class, and a lot of it was about the, the calculations of decisions, the, you know, expected value of certain decisions and, um, you know, all, things like that, that I never thought, in, that, that was before I played poker, but I remember that kind of concepts were things to think that I hadn't thought about before. It's like, yeah, it's not just about what you're trying to accomplish. It's what are the odds that if I do this, it may lead to a positive outcome and how big is that outcome versus the odds that it'll happen and all the pot odds types of concepts that I didn't know till years later when I started playing poker and I learned about them. And I definitely see that in life a lot where, where every even personal decisions, if people don't overtly think that way, they really are considering, okay, I'm trying to accomplish this. What are my odds of success? How much effort or investment do I need to put in to try to make that happen? When do I decide I put in too much, I need to quit? When do I decide I'm pot committed and I need to just see it through? Those things happen in life all the time, whether it's at the poker table or outside the poker table, in law and investigations, in politics and business. And that's why I think poker is so fascinating because the thinking is the thinking that we all use in life. Game theory, you call it that. And so I'm, I'm often seeing things in those terms. Part of what I was thinking is I feel like one of the more explicit ways it comes up in like the, the law or criminal law in particular is the idea of deterrence right? that like certain crimes anyway are, are more or less a rational calculation of like, okay, I can steal X dollars and there's a Y percent chance that I'm going to get caught. Like there's sort of an EV calculation there. That's, that's the idea anyway. And um, I, I think there's at least the idea out there that like sex crimes maybe don't fall into that category or fall less in, into that category, that it's not a rational uh, calculation. So I guess my question is like, can we deter sex crimes or like does the threat of punishment uh, deter sex crimes? Well, that's a great question. And certainly most sex crimes have less premeditation. A lot of times they're the ones that I investigate it are involved some kind of consensual activity where someone then draws a line that they don't want to proceed past that and the person ignores that line and that's different than how you often see sexual assault in fiction and movies where it's the stranger in the dark alley or the stranger swiping a kid from a playground those aren't the real world cases that are the most often seen usually it's people who know each other trust each other and someone violates that trust so to answer your question I think you can deter that behavior you can deter that behavior by people seeing the consequences that other people experienced when they were either arrested or in an organization. If it's a sexual harassment situation, someone else who's committing sexual harassment is if they're removed from the job. You know, certainly, you know, when we see the most egregious cases in the news, such as a Harvey Weinstein type case, I would suspect that for some people that does deter others to think, you know, I can't treat people the way I've been treating people for years because it was acceptable by society, or at least it was not as criticized by society because for so long people couldn't speak up about those types of issues, but now they can. So I think there is more deterrence now in corporate America and elsewhere to not behave in a certain way because people will be called out about it. That being said, it's still happening in a big way and I investigate those cases all the time. It seems like there's also, I mean, and taking Weinstein as an example, it may be something that kind of gets worse over time. I guess the idea of being emboldened, right? sort of like when you do something and you get away with it and it doesn't have any repercussion for you, and then you're a little more bold uh, doing you know, the next thing the, the next time. Um, so I guess there's like a, a game theory element there as well, if wanting to like nip something in the bud. 
Absolutely. People, for instance, I, I was, when I was a prosecutor, I prosecuted domestic violence cases very often. Uh, I would see in those cases when there was an egregious situation of violence, almost every single time there were precursor violence that was dangerous but less severe. And before that, there was nonviolent abuse, such as verbal abuse, financial manipulation, things like that. And and being emboldened is such a major part of misconduct, whether it's domestic violence, sex crimes, financial fraud, when people feel, okay, you know, I got away with this. So Harvey Weinstein, all these accusations that you hear about, that you read about, I'm sure he didn't just one day just start doing all of that. He probably started, and a lot of the accusations show this, with lesser conduct. And we, sometimes we call it boundary probing. Okay, can I get away with this? Oh, I can. Can I get away with this? Okay. And now it, this has happened repeatedly and there's been no negative consequence. So you can take another step, another step, and you add to that celebrity status and someone like Harvey Weinstein, who is given you know major awards and praised and someone feels, wow, I really can get away with just about anything. And many of the people are getting away with just about anything for years and decades. And some people still are. So you're absolutely right. P people being emboldened and feeling confident that, okay, this worked. I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, so it sounds like there at least that that's a very different model than the kind of um, the sort of like crime of passion idea where it's uh, there, there's no calculation involved. You're sort of overcome by, by passion. I don't necessarily mean like a positive passion, but just sort of like you're overcome by emotion or urge or, or something like that. And uh, I, mean, I guess that's the kind of stranger grabbing you off the street model that, uh, that is not really the majority of sex crimes. Well, definitely the so-called crime of passion where someone's acting out of anger or some other type of emotional motivation, those are harder to deter because people aren't necessarily thinking through the consequences. And even if there's a strong deterrent structure in place with the legal system, someone may not care in that moment. And that's challenging. And we see that with, for example, domestic violence cases where there are a lot of different counseling programs to try to help um, get people to not be abusive, to deal um, with their issues in a different way. And it, it's really debatable about whether any of those programs are successful because often people committing that type of violence aren't thinking through the consequences. And, and that makes them extra dangerous because if someone can't be deterred, and is going to commit violence because they're trying to control someone else or hurt someone else, and they don't really care what happens to them necessarily, then it's really hard to figure out a way to keep others safe from them. Okay, I dragged you down a deep rabbit hole there, but uh, is, <laughs> is there more that you want to tell people about the book? Well, I would just say that you know it's a political thriller about misconduct allegations in the worlds of high-stakes poker and international politics. I based it a lot on my personal experiences and I based it on some things that have been in the news. Um, one anecdote, if you have time, I could tell you. Um, um, so so my, but the first time I ever played in a World Series of Poker event, which was a little over a decade ago, I had never um, played with anyone who is a famous poker player in any way. I was pretty new to poker. Um, and so I, I'm sitting down at this $2,000 buy-in World Series of Poker event, really excited. Next thing I know, at the table right next to me, Phil Helmuth is there standing up, screaming at this guy who looks like he, you know, you have to be 21 to play in those events, but he looked like he was 16 or something. And that young person had just called the clock on Phil Helmuth in like the first level of his $2,000 buy-in tournament. And he was screaming, saying, who are you, you punk? You're calling the clock on me. Do you know who I am? I bust people like you every day and screaming. And 
there there were no cameras around. So I was someone who had watched him have these blow-ups on TV, and I was like, wow, this is real. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, no, there's, no, there's no camera around. No, yeah, but everyone stopped. I, th I thought this was the most entertaining thing I'd ever seen in my life. So I'm not telling the story in a negative way. I thought it was great, and I thought I, um, I, I was like, wow, this is someone who is fascinating to watch. And I, pu I put that scene in my book also. So things like that, I tried to incorporate the real world of Hofer that I've seen over the years. That's interesting. I mean, I don't know how much you've like following uh, poker Twitter and like, poker current events, but there was just a stream recently. I try. That, how many, did, have you heard about this? Um, this, like, I, I think I know what you're referring stream. to, but go ahead. Yeah, that, I mean, it's just another example of Helmuth antics, sort of. I mean, there was, uh, there was more money involved than, than maybe there sometimes yes. is. But, um, I mean, the, the, this question of like whether and there's probably not one answer to this, but like whether amateur poker players like Phil Helmy, like sort of is, is he uh, right. encouraging people to come into the game? Like, is it like fun to see him act that way, or is <laughs> it giving poker players a bad uh, a bad reputation? But I mean, it sounds like your experience was like, oh, that's um, entertaining or, or neat to to see this thing that like I, I know that he has this reputation, and now here I am seeing it in. In person. Yeah, I did, I did see on poker Twitter that he posted a video explaining that and I think he had one of the individuals involved talking about the situation. So one thing. So for me, poker is entertainment for me. I know some people do it as a profession. You know, they're trying to make a profit and support themselves. And, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for people who can do that successfully. I don't think I'd be able to. But for me, it's entertainment and great entertainment. So someone like Phil Helmuth, what I love about him is it's not just his blow ups, but that in between the blow ups, he's always talking about these very um, docile types of like attitudes. Like he says, OK, now I'm thinking he had that whole positivity movement. I don't know if he still has it where he's like, you know, we're calm, we're thinking positivity, it's all about positivity. And that's like right after a blow up. And that's like right before a blow up. So I thought from an entertainment perspective, that is fascinating to me. It's like, I'm going to have this blow up, then I'm going to be on talk on, you know, all these shows talking about the importance of positivity and as you just said this other series of blow-ups that's also so i mean on the one hand as a moral thinking person i'm like oh i wish you wouldn't act like that but as someone seeking entertainment i'm like wow I, I hope this continues because it is really interesting to watch so i feel conflicted in that so i'm not sure what the right answer is yeah that's kind of where i am as well i mean i feel like one of the things that's most interesting to me about poker is the sort of the human element of it and just like seeing people under pressure and how they respond to that and of course it's it's not always positive but it is usually interesting uh, and i mean it, he is a good example of someone who has extreme reactions but it also seems to have extreme success in the way that like my my idea of the ideal poker player is a very sort of uh you know equilibrium in, in, in the emotional sense, um, even if not in, in the game theoretic sense of someone who's like kind of unflappable. And, and he is someone who's been tremendously successful despite not following that model at all, which is pretty interesting. Right. And I'm probably hypocritical because I'm, I'm thinking, oh, wow, when this happens at the next table for me, I find it fascinating. Or when I'm watching on TV, I find it entertaining. But if I'm at a table and someone's being the slightest bit rude, I get really annoyed because I'm like, wait, I'm just here to relax, have fun. And you're being rude, so then I find it really objectionable. So I'm probably being hypocritical there that I'm thinking it's entertaining at the same time. I don't want to experience that at the table I'm at, uh, except for Phil Helmuth. He has a license to you know, rant at my table if I ever am lucky to play with him, because I think that would be an experience that I could put in my next book. 
probably also a good example of someone who's uh, probed boundaries over the years and been involved. In. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, would poker be as interesting on TV if everyone was calm and didn't talk at all? Probably not. It's hard to say. Yeah. Um, so is, is tournament poker your, your preferred poison? Yeah, I love tournament poker. I play cash games sometimes, but for me, tournaments are much more interesting, much more motivating. The fact that you see a big field, whether it's 50, 100, 1,000 or more, and you're trying to take down the whole tournament and you have a fixed buy-in, so you're not thinking, do I need to rebuy? I mean, some tournaments are rebuys at the beginning, but you're not thinking about, okay, how much do I cap my losses at? What am I trying to win? When do I have to walk away from the table? I really don't want to think about any of that. I just want to think, <laughs> here's my buy-in. I'm trying to take down this whole tournament and go as far as I can. And to me, that's much more exciting. And so I, I love playing No Limit Hold'em tournaments. Um, and, you know, as I, as I uh, we were talking about before, I'm playing the World Series Poker main event for the first time this July. So I, I really can't wait for that. I mean, that's something I've dreamed about for years. Yeah, so I think we can kind of segue into um, talking some some strategy here. Uh, what are your thoughts, concerns? Like, what what have you been um, doing to to prepare for this? Why this year, for that matter? Well, why this year? It's something I wanted to do for you know about twenty years, and I. I think it's just the right time in my life to do it. I've written this book about poker. I feel like I've been out there a little bit, a little bit more visible in the poker world, and it just makes sense to play in this. And my experience is that going deep in the main event is a great way to promote a book about poker that you just wrote. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> what would be a better way to promote my book than to win the main event of the World Series of Poker? So that, that's the only that's that's the reason I'm doing that. But for for me, uh, it's something I just wanted to do for so long, and I think one thing that the horrendous world events of the last two years with COVID and otherwise have shown us that I think it's important to, when you can, seize an opportunity to live a dream because you don't know what's going to happen in the future, sadly. So for me, I feel like, you know, this is something I've wanted to do for about 20 years and uh, now is the time where I can make it happen. And I, I have some friends who are partially backing me, which I want to add is probably the worst investment they've ever made in their lives. But <laughs> nevertheless, I feel like it's all come together and I'm really excited. My main concern is that I am, I don't think I'll be intimidated by the environment because I played in some big tournaments and I, I've, you know, I've, 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 had, I've been in trials. I've done things that I thought had a lot of pressure, but the one thing is I'm very goal oriented. And when I play in a tournament, whether it's a local tournament at the Borgata or Mohegan Sun or something, my goal is to try to win the whole tournament. I'm not, and I'm often, mostly I don't win the whole tournament. I'm not saying I do, but that's my goal. At least I'm not, I'm never trying just to cash because to me, that's not exciting enough. But, the, and I think that if you try just to cash in a tournament, you're going to maybe maximize your chances of making the money, but you're going to minimize your chances of winning the tournament because you're going to play really tight at the money bubble. And then you're not going to have a lot of chips to go beyond that. So my concern with the world series of poker main event is I don't know what my goal is. And if I don't have a goal, I'm not sure how I should play. Is my goal just to survive the first hour or is it to make day two or is it to make the, you know, make the money bubble or make the final table, even if it's an unrealistic goal, I think it's really important to dictate your play based on what your goal is. And I'm not sure what my goal is. And I'm concerned that that's going to throw me off from having a logical analysis of where I'm going. I feel like I've been dominating things so far. So Carlos, if you have thoughts, feel free to uh, jump in first. Uh, my main thought is 
in the beginning, I would just say play your normal game because stacks are so deep that it's fairly hard to bust um, early on day one at least. Uh, I'm not sure what how many big blinds you tend to have at the end of day one, but it's probably still over 100. Yeah, I think it's 100. I think it's, if I have it correct, I think it's 300, 600. At the end of day one, you start with 60,000 in chips. I could have that a little bit inaccurate, but I think that's what it is. Yeah, so as long as you um, don't get too crazy on day one, I don't think that is going to be a major issue. I would say I agree with what you said about um, the tighter you play and the more you focus on cashing, the less um chance the, the less chance you have to win but i disagree with what i kind of think i heard you say in terms of uh your reaction to that is to not play tight on the bubble no you you should play tight on the bubble um the it's the what i would call the pre-bubble is the stage where you can kind of like take some chances to give yourself a chance to win so if you are like literally like 10 to 15 players off the money you don't want to like you know play for the win there but i'm assuming this is probably going to get into the money beginning of day four i don't even know where it is these days that's where it's been in the last yeah that's generally where it's been yeah so i would say probably like middle of day three if you don't have a stack that you think allows you to um abuse the bubble if you're not one of the top two or three stacks at that point then not in the tournament but like at your table or like middle of the pack in terms of the entire tournament then i think you can take some liberties to um um take some more thinner um, plus ev spots but when you're actually able to see the finish line in terms of like crossing into the money that's not the time to like make a stand so yeah i would just say Normal game early. Just kind of move up. Move up your normal point of, like, you know, um, playing for the win. And then if that doesn't work out and you're still left with some chip, chips by chance and you're able to fold your way in, it is correct to do that. That is very helpful. I, I, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to follow that. If it doesn't work out, I'm, I'm going to have to write to you and let you know. But <laughs> I, but that's, that sounds like great advice. Yeah, if you don't win the main event, it's Carlos's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly. <laughs> I feel I'm like what you think about this, Sandra. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, was, I think for for anyone who's like not a professional poker player, maybe even for people who who are, you're getting some like. So the reason you're you're playing this is not it's not only about EV. Right? It's not just like how can I maximize my dollars per hour while playing in this in this tournament. Like it's. it's I get the sense that uh, in no small part it's the one in the experience of of playing which is part of part of your goal here is to kind of enjoy the experience of playing yeah i i know a few other people who are playing and to me this is i don't want to call it a fantasy camp like a baseball fantasy camp but in a sense it is which i don't want to think that way too much because i do want to do well mm -hmm. i do want to try to win and last as long as i can and I want it to be a fun experience, but it would be a lot more fun to win the whole thing or to cash in it than it would be to get knocked out on day one. So it's not it, it, part of it is about maximizing your EV and trying to make the most money from the tournament, but also it's a more positive experience if it's going to be this 
uh, okay, I, I played for three hours and then I busted versus, wow, I was, I was here for four days, five days, whatever. Mm. And I had this amazing experience I've never had before. And so that's how I'm looking at it. It's definitely something where I think it's going to be something that I, you know, I've thought about for so long. It would be a shame if it just ended quickly. Yeah, and, and that's where I think there's a little bit of like a, a, a trade-off that is, is worth thinking about explicitly because i think if if your only goal were to maximize your ev in the tournament you would probably just want to max late register um there's this kind of in, intrinsic icm <laughs> value to doing that and uh it's your decisions are somewhat less complicated if if you are um shallower but that's slicing off 10 plus hours of playing in the wsap make event time um and presumably you you will enjoy those hours um Okay. It, no, I was just gonna say it's interesting you said that because I saw when I was registering that you can register on day two, and I was wondering why people would do that. I think you just gave an answer, but I, I've been wondering about that. Like, why would you go out there and register on day two unless you just your flight was delayed? But I, I saw that option, so it's helpful to hear, you know, what, what you're saying. It might be a reason to do that. It's so it's so funny to me because I've been on both sides of this coin, where the first time I played it. I was kind of like in the same boat that you're going to be in, but now I'm kind of like, you know, a grizzled old vet. And when Andrew talks about shaving 10 hours off of playing the main event, like 2022 Carlos kind of hears that and thinks like, Oh, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> but but 20, 2015 Carlos was like there 30 minutes before the thing started visualizing <laughs> the win. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny how I've changed in terms of that. Are you playing it this year? I think I am going to play it this year. Um, and, and I was thinking about this as well. My primary reason for playing it this year is just to get on TV. <laughs> just because I feel like I'm a lot for that now because I was able to win a bracelet last year and um, got friendly with um, Jeff Platt, who is the, um, for lack of a better term, the um, sideline reporter. Um, and I had... Um, the um, I had the chance to play it last year. In fact, I played several satellites to the main, and I won four seats. But instead of playing, I just sold them because I'd rather have the money. Um, but um, Jeff was doing this thing, which I think is new for this year. I don't remember it the year before, which I guess was uh, you know pre-COVID. Um, he was going up to a lot of the tables and like interviewing like notable players at the table. And I was thinking to myself, oh, I actually tweeted this. If I knew Jeff was doing that, is oh, I said, if I could get a guarantee that I could get interviewed on TV by Jeff, I would play. And then he basically told me like, if you play, I will interview you. So that's literally the only reason I'm doing it. And I want to schedule it. If I could schedule him to like, hey, interview me at day, on day two when I register, I would definitely do that. But if that's not an option, then I will start from day one and, and probably probably play too passively to like last long enough for, uh, for him to come around and interview me. And then after that, then I'll start my, my uh, pre-bubble game to either win the thing or get out of there. <laughs> And then what's the motivation for being interviewed? Does that help other aspects of your poker game or career or like publicity yes. or things like that? Yep. Yes. So um, being um, a coach 
as well as being someone who has poker training products and primarily someone who my my primary game is online on uh, Bavada, which doesn't have player names. It isn't tracked on Shark Scope. So very few of my potential customers or students can see evidence of my results. So that was the motivation for even playing the WSOP events last year was because I needed to get like some hidden mob entries. So like if someone's considering me as a coach and they look me up and say, oh, this guy hasn't cashed anything since 2015 or whatever. But that's because I've been playing on a site that isn't tracked. So um, I did that last year and was lucky enough to win a bracelet. So now every time I play a tournament, you know, Poker News is doing updates on me. So all this stuff is, I kind of view it as like a marketing budget uh, to get my name out there in terms of uh, selling uh, my products. And um, yeah, so that's my main motivation. Yeah, you got to ride the wave. Absolutely. That, that makes total sense. Yeah. And I want my mama to see me on TV. <laughs> There's that. Well, that's really important too. So I think um, in, in terms of like both in, in like, but part of enjoying the event, right, is you want to play well, right? Like it wouldn't, so I mean, you could also play to just maximize your amount of time spent playing and that would involve doing a ton of folding which would i mean a like the folding would be boring but b i think part of the enjoyment of playing it is feeling like you were willing to take the appropriate risks um so i think there is some kind of inherent tension between wanting to maximize the sort of like time that you get to spend enjoying the experience and wanting to maximize the um the sort of like financial and, and strategic outcome of the experience and I th- yeah, absolutely. No, good. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Um, well, I, I was going to sort of move on to like how to do those things. So if you have more that you want to say about that. The only thing I was going to say is, and I'm not delusional. I know I have hardly any chance of accomplishing this, but my goal is to win the tournament because that's the only way I can really, that's how I approach things like this. So, I, and I want to play accordingly. So that being said, I could be knocked out in five minutes, but I, I, I want to play, like you said, I don't want to just fold to survive and say, okay, I made it to day two. I want to try my best to win. And then wherever I come up short, hopefully it's not extremely short. That, that's how I would generally look at it. So I, I get the sense that not everyone finds this kind of goal helpful, but in terms of setting goals, the one that I most often recommend to people is to have your goal be to make every decision as well as possible. And I guess the thing that I like about that is it's a lot more under your control than, you know, setting like make day three as a goal or win the tournament as, as a goal. I mean, that's a kind of like abstract. I mean, it would be nice to win the tournament, but it's not really something like you, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to win the tournament. And it doesn't necessarily tell you what to do like, in any given situation. Um, and I think that as, as much as you, you can focus on, um, you know, I, I have two cards in front of me right now, and there's a right way to play these two cards, and my job is to find that way. And often it's just folding. I mean, if you get dealt seven deuce offsuit under the gun, that's an easy one. I mean, you, you're going to play that hand as well as the best player in the world. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And I, I definitely feel like if, if I play what I think is a correct decision and it doesn't work out, okay, that's what happened. But if I make some really colossal blunder and then I have to live with that, that would be harder to accept. So I totally agree with you. you I want to feel like, okay, I made the best decision that I'm capable of making on each hand and then 
see what saw what happened from that. Yeah, and I think it follows from that then that sometimes your early street decisions you can make with an eye towards that objective of like what you really want to avoid um, to some degree from an EV perspective but also from a satisfaction perspective you want to avoid ending up in really tough situations with a lot of money on the line um, that's the kind of thing I mean hey you could just you know, make a mistake and, and that's expensive but also the I mean I can tell you from personal experience the emotional trauma of making a mistake under those circumstances is something like I the, the deepest I was ever in the main event was in uh, 2008 and like I still remember with with sort of visceral pain um, a hand that I think I played poorly deep in, in that tournament um, so it's like not having those situations is, is nice and I think trying to avoid playing pots from out of position especially when you have hands that um, don't have the potential to make a hand that you're willing to play a big pot with um, so things like uh, ace jack offsuit from early position or uh, even after the flop, you know, one pair sort of hand in, in what's brewing to be a large pot. Um, when you have choices about whether or not to enter the pot or whether or not to make the pot larger, like, am I going to check raise when I flop top pair? Am I going to raise ace jack offsuit from from under the gun in level one of, of the tournament? You know, questions like that, there, I mean, there's sort of a right answer to them, but usually the EV is quite close. Like the, the difference between raising or folding ace jack offsuit under the gun is, is not very large. The difference between check raising or check calling when you flop top pair versus a late position raiser is often quite close. So it's not like you're giving up a ton of money by, by not raising those hands. And one of the things that you're doing is, I mean, you're, you're often minimizing your variance, which is intrinsically valuable in, in tournaments, but you're also helping yourself. I mean, it's not going to feel like a big deal. You have 60,000 chips. You're like, oh, I'll put a thousand into raising ace jack under the gun. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that like any pot could turn into a 60,000 chip pot. That's what <laughs> no limit hold is, right? So, you know, you are kind of starting to go down a road that it feels very comfortable at first, but then suddenly you end up in a situation where you're not comfortable anymore. And that leads to all sorts of bad outcomes. Um, it, it may lead to a mistaken fold because you don't want to you know, jeopardize a lot of chips early in the tournament. If you've become frustrated, it might lead to a mistaken call where you feel like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm short stack now, so I have to take a risk. And, and then you do something sort of panicky. Uh, and regardless, if, if you do end up losing a lot of chips in a situation where you weren't sure of, of the right play, it's, I think, going to be very, uh, it's an unsatisfying experience to be questioning that and having to explain it to your backers, I guess, <laughs> uh, for, yeah. for years afterwards. So I think, you know, when, when decisions feel close, trying to err on the side of um, staying out of trouble, essentially, um, and, and thinking ahead to allowing yourself to have more straightforward decisions on later streets where it's like, okay, either I have a hand that I, I know is worthless and I can just get away from it easily, or I have a hand that I know is good and I can feel confident playing a large pot with it. Um, trying to put yourself in those decisions and thinking about your early street decisions in terms of giving yourself easier decisions when the stakes are higher further down the line, um, I think that can advance several objectives. That is great advice because there are certain hands that you're putting yourself in a difficult situation. Like you said, ace jack. Do you ever win a big pot with ace jack without having a difficult decision unless you flop, you know, ace jack jack or something? But if you're flopping, you know, if the flop uh, is ace high and you have ace jack, you're always going to have a difficult decision if someone pushes back at you and you're setting yourself up for that, especially from early position. So that that is great advice. And I also wanted to say, 
you you said that you you know misplayed a hand at the World Series of Poker. I every time I talk to anybody, I misplay hands all the time. But whenever I talk to anyone who busts out of a major tournament, they always tell a bad beat story like every single time and i'm like wow no one ever busts out of any of these tournaments without a bad beat story so it's great when people have other explanations for something that went wrong i know i certainly misplay hands a lot but it, it's funny to me how it's always oh i got it in with the best hand but it didn't work out that seems to be most people's story i would love to get bad meat out of the main event it's never happened to me <laughs> um, I, I, every time that i've gone out of the main event it's always been uh i did something questionable either even either on the hand that I actually went out on or like in order to get myself short stacked to to then go out on. Maybe it ended up being a bad beat for my last eight big blinds or something, but like the important hand was one that that I misplayed. Um, I mean, the way I think about tournaments is like, you're probably, I mean, you're probably not going to win the main event. So it's going to end in one of two ways. (laughs) Either you get obviously unlucky or you make a mistake and I don't want to go out on a mistake so like getting unlucky is kind of the best case scenario it's the best i mean short of winning the tournament the best thing i can ask for is that uh, i go out on, on a bad beat so um yeah i, I find that that's one way of uh, absorbing them a little bit better is to be like well at least i can't blame myself for this yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my best moments in poker has been losing a flip to maria ho on day three of the main event um and I had the queens, and she had ace king. So that, <laughs> so technically, I was ahead. But yeah, that that's how. If you had to like draw it up, that's how you want to go out, on a flip where you can't say you made a mistake anywhere. You didn't really get bad beat because it was almost like fifty fifty. Yeah, that's about as good as it gets. Do you feel like people go and move all in? In that hand, you had a strong hand, but do people move all in against people they see as celebrity poker players because they want the story? Because I've seen that happen also, and people talk about that, where it's like, well, I want the story of moving all in against Maria Ho or someone like that, and then being able to tell people about it. If you're an amateur, if you're a new player. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Um, I used to watch the coverage pretty closely. Um, several years ago, and I would see a lot of recreational players kind of go out of their way to play against the pros. In fact, some of them kind of became like minor poker celebrities because of it. Uh, probably wasn't good for them, um, at least in that tournament, in terms of like their chances of winning. But um, you guys may remember if you watched the coverage, but there was this guy they called um, Farmer Phil who would like battle with Phil Ivey. I don't remember what year that was. But like I I, I can if if I saw that guy's face now, I would say, hey, that's farmer Phil. <laughs> so just some guy that was a farmer who was going who was tangling with Ivy. So yeah, you definitely um see that dynamic a lot. I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean I think people tend to just freak out in general when they see someone that they recognize i guess that's not even specific to poker <laughs> even like in other contexts people sometimes freak out when they see someone that they like is a celebrity or they recognize from tv or whatever but i guess poker adds the element of like actually needing to compete against them um so i mean i think there is the, the bit about wanting a story and wanting to say i made a big call against this person or i bluffed this person uh and then i think there's also the sense of just i need to do something different because this is like this is an elite player and so i have to do something weird or different or like take my game to another level to compete against them and that i think is something you really want to try to fight against um the advice that somebody gave me the first year that i played the main event that i still think of is um you know i think my concern at the time uh, i was like what if i have to play with negranio 
and he was like, he Nagan, you just dealt two cards off the same deck that you do. You know, he has all the same. He he bets under the same betting rules that you do. There's only so much he can do. There's only so much that his skill enables him to do. And you know, for the most part, the right play against Nagano is going to be the same as what the right play would be against someone else. And um, it's not 100% true, but it's it's fairly true. And uh, the more that you kind of focus on the fact that it's Nagano rather than the fact that you have no pair, no draw, <laughs> that you're thinking, I have to do something special because this is Nagano, rather than just thinking about, like, what's the right way to play these cards on this board without regard for who that other person is on the other side of the table. Um, I think that that's generally better. Uh, I'm not saying that that other person doesn't matter at all. I just think most people over-adjust and think, you know, especially when it is a, a like celebrity poker player who's involved, I think there's a tendency for people to like get inside their own head and think that they have to do something really extreme or, or different from what they would typically do because, oh, this person could be bluffing in any situation. I mean, yeah, they could be, but uh, there's, there's reasons why you're used to folding certain hands in certain situations, and those folds are either also correct against the celebrity poker player or at worst are going to be only small mistakes. It's not like they're going to be bluffing like so much more often there than, than some other person would be. Right. And when you're watching television, you're seeing edited versions of tournaments where of course they're only showing the most dramatic hands with the big bluffs or the big hands. So yeah. if then you see that celebrity and you're like, wow, every time I've seen them play a hand, they did something <laughs> crazy or brilliant. And you're not seeing the hours and hours of just disciplined, smart play that got them that far. Yeah, I think you want to kind of, if, if you do happen to land at a table with someone who seems to be very good, rather, whether or not you, you recognize them, um, I think you want to look at that as an opportunity of, okay, I just want to study this person and kind of see, to the extent that you can see their cards at Showdown, certainly you want to learn from that. But I think you can learn a lot even just from seeing their demeanor at the table. Uh, how do they carry themselves? How do they respond to various things that, that happen at the table? Uh, how do they respond to getting bad beat or, or to losing pots and, and all that kind of thing? And um, I think you can learn a lot even when you never see their cards of just how to, how to carry yourself uh, at the table. Uh, which, which isn't to say that like, you don't know how to carry yourself at the table, but just you know, I think you—that's one of the things. It's sort of an intangible thing, but it's something I still feel like I pick up sometimes from um, from playing with really elite players. Is uh, you just sort of osmote something, I think, from um, watching them handle cards. Yeah, I do hope to learn. We talked about the other motives to play. One is to learn from the experience and become a better player. Also, hopefully, even though it's a short. You know, it's one tournament, even though it's a long tournament, however long I last, I hope to learn a lot by playing with all these people who are really top players and seeing how, you know, with this deep structure, how people play. And hopefully that helps me as I go forward with other poker tournaments in the future. That that would be nice, but I'll tell you <laughs> from my experience, that doesn't happen. It, it may happen a little bit. I'll tell you what teaches you, the pain. The pain, the pain is what teaches you. Uh, so 2015 was my first year playing it, and I kind of had this whole thing where I wanted to, you know, last in the tournament for a while. And so I kind of like played probably too tight and too passive because of that. But to your point earlier, I, I increased my chances of cashing while decreasing my chances of winning. But that was fine for me because honestly, cashing was my goal that year so i did that that was 2015 and then 2016 you know i've been there done that you know i'd already cashed this thing like you know now it's time to win it and that's when i got to day three and i played this hand with maria ho and um 
we both played the hand um, correctly and she won the flip, but I put myself in a position where had I won that hand, I would have had, I think, over 100 bigs um, at the beginning of day three. And back then, I think the bubble was like the end of day three. So I, so that was kind of like what I was saying earlier about um, the pre-bubble stage. Like, this is where you want to take your stand because if it works out, then you get to abuse people on the bubble. I mean, that was fun. I actually went in. I think I sat at the table for 20 minutes, busted, and I came out with a smile because it was like I made day three. Uh, I played a hand against Maria Ho, and I held my own, and I actually got it in good, quote, unquote, Uh, and everything was fine. 2017, I played, and that one was a disaster because now – um, day one, I don't even remember, but day two, I had a very, very aggressive table, and I was kind of stuck not knowing how to deal with that. Like, I had ranges in my head in terms of, like, okay, these are the hands you can play from these spots, um, given these actions. But I didn't really understand, like, okay, what do you do when there's a guy that's opening, like, 30% of hands under the gun, and then there's another guy that's three-betting him, like, 20% of the time? Like, my range is shriveled up to nothing in that spot, as you can imagine, and that sort of action was happening a lot. And because of it, I ended up blinding out of the tournament, more or less. Well, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I should say I got shorter earlier than I needed to just because I wasn't taking advantage of all the dead money, these um, all the loose money these aggressive players were putting in. And, of course, they were, like, colliding with each other. So one of them has to win. So that guy would, like, bust some other aggressive player, and then a new aggressive player comes to the spot, and, like, you know, they'll bust a different one. All of a sudden, there's all these massive stacks around me, and I'm just sitting here more or less <laughs> blinding out. <laughs> and then I think I got to a point where I was down to like 20 bigs or something at the end of day two. And I took a standard spot and um, ended up busting. And it was so painful <laughs> that like that experience basically changed my poker life. And it made me the player I am today because I busted the main uh, $10,000 buy-in end of day two. And I immediately drove directly from the Rio to the Flamingo to register some $70 tournament. Whatever was running <laughs> that night, I, was, I have to get back in another tournament right now. I got to blow off some kind of steam. And I went there, and then I kind of played like a more aggressive style. Kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I talked about taking thinner spots during the pre-bubble stage. And if that works out, you got a big stack where you can you know, run over the bubble with and uh, that basically became the style that I play to this day. Here we are five years later. But, you know, losing that flip to Maria, I didn't learn anything from that. <laughs> Ca- cashing in, in, in 2015, um, didn't learn anything from that. Watching other good players play, didn't learn anything from that. The pain, the pain of <laughs> damn near blotting out in 2017. That's where I learned everything I needed to know about tournament poker. That's great. It, I think that's true throughout life. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from the things that go wrong. And it's like, ah, oh, now, now how am I going to avoid this happening again? Exactly. 
Uh, I have more I could say, but I want to check in with you, Dan. I, I might have told you we were going to be an hour. Do you do you have more time or do you need to go? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm loving talking to you guys, whatever. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, Obviously, this is going to be a new venue this year for, for the WSOP. But um, in general, I think like breaks go quickly. Um, it's 20 minutes is longer probably than breaks that you're accustomed to in, in other tournaments. But with mm-hmm. so many people there, um, just like... It, there have been times during the main event, especially on like a, a busy day one, if you play like day one D or whatever is the last day one, where you basically have to choose like, do I want to spend my break going to the bathroom or do I want to spend my break getting food? Uh, because you're only going to have time to do one of those two things. Yeah, that's one thing that I really need to figure out. I guess you're, you should bring food with you because you might not be able to get it during those breaks because there's five levels, yeah, 20 have, minute have breaks a lot of, like, in between. Substantive snacks anyway. Yeah, I mean it's a long day. I think it kicks off at eleven a.m. and what was the the fifth level ends around like midnight or even later. Yeah, later. So I mean, if you play five two-hour levels plus a dinner break plus other breaks. Yeah, yeah, it'll be later than that. Yeah, so yeah, I I'm I'm gonna try to get ready for that. That's the hard thing that it's hard to prepare for. I mean, I played in some multi-day tournaments and long tournaments, but I know just you know playing locally to gear up for it in local casinos there's not a lot of ways to simulate that experience of playing for you know 10 hours plus the breaks all day but hopefully i can build up the stamina for that yeah i think not playing the last day one so that you get a day off um or you're trying to give yourself day offs so that you'll have a day off after day one and have a day off after your day two before before playing day three um having that day to recover will make a big difference because then either at least my experience has been you feel like you can just sort of like go hard and drink coffee if you need to even if you don't drink coffee and you drink coffee at like 8 p.m or something knowing that it's going to mess up your sleep but that you don't want, you know you're going to have the next day off um giving yourself permission to to do those things is helpful yeah i'm scheduled to play day 1d based on my travel plan so you get a day off after day one but then you're right you don't get the day off after day two so that would be nice to have that day off, but I guess that's only a problem if I make it to day three. So then I'll have to worry about it at that point, but I, I could see how that would be beneficial then. Yeah, I mean, I, I for a long time, I've been more just focused on like what was the softest day one or trying to anticipate the softest day one and not worrying so much about the, the days off. And then um, I made day five in 2019 and was like really, really tired. And I was like, I don't remember being this tired the last time I was deep in the main event. And I was like, well, you are eight years older than the last time you were deep in the main event. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it It seems to me, I've not played the main event again since then, um, but I, I think I probably underestimated the advantage of giving myself that day off. And if, if stamina is a concern, I would encourage you. I mean, I, I obviously you're <laughs> constrained on your uh, travel things as well, but I would you know take seriously the advantage of that. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, you know, like hydration, uh, which has to be balanced with, with urination. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, so I guess like knowing where the nearest bathroom to your, your seat is, I'm trying, trying to get a sense of that anyway and, and having a plan for how you're going to get there as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, and it'll be interesting with the new venue. I assume part of having the new venue is that it's bigger space. I know the Amazon room is huge, but uh, hopefully they're able to accommodate more people in a more conducive way to breaks and things like that. And they've thought that through, but we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to suck so bad. It's going to suck so bad. 
<laughs> like I more or less live at the Rio, and I every day I'm there, I look around, and I just I already miss it for the other players. Um, when the WSOP comes, I think everybody is going to realize how how good we had it. Yeah, I've never really understood why people hate on the Rio to to the degree that they do. A lot of it has felt like snobbery to me. Um, I think it's been a reasonably good venue. Uh, I mean, being off strip is inconvenient in some ways, but it does. Um, I mean, parking can be a nightmare at the Rio, and hopefully fewer people will need to park on the strip. But you know, that's parking is a big issue. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when they moved it to the Rio from Binion's and people went, were, some people were apoplectic about it, that how, how can you not have it at Binion's? And I don't know if you remember the first year, it might have been 2005, they had to bring the final table back to Binion's yeah. just because, so I guess whenever there's change, people don't like that. But I guess we'll see how it happens this year. Yeah, I do remember thinking that um, poker players or maybe just people in general are, are very resistant to change and, and to doing anything differently i i remember uh playing in it was like a casino i'd never played in before and um they th there was like a player complaint because we were eight-handed at our at our table and those players just complaining constantly said like, we have an open seat just yelling at the floor like we have an open seat over here we have an open seat over here and then he's like the, the floor says actually you have two open seats we're ten-handed now and he's, the guy's like ten-handed ten-handed <laughs> <laughs> I see that all the time when I'm playing in a local tournament near me that might be like a $100 tournament and we're down to three tables and people are screaming about the imbalance because one table has eight and the other table has 10. They haven't gotten around to moving it. And people are like furious at the floor. I'm just always wondering like, okay, this is not a huge deal. Yeah. Like it's really not going to change the course of our lives if we play eight-handed <laughs> while someone else is 10-handed for 10 minutes. Um, yeah, anything else in your mind main event-wise? I think you gave me all the answers. I don't see how I can possibly not win it all based on the advice you've given yeah, me and the guidance. Up, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, no, thank you. I'm very grateful. I'm really excited. So um, Carlos, hopefully I'll see you out there. Andrew, I don't know if you'll be out there. But uh, I don't. I don't know yet either. I'm, I'm probably not a favorite, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Carlos, hopefully I'll see you out there, and some of yes. your listeners hopefully connect with me on social media or somewhere else and I could I could see you out there I, I can't wait I mean this is really something I've wanted to do for literally 20 years and I just can't wait to be there and be a part of it uh, and so for listeners who do want to connect with you on social media how should they do that sure so it's Dan Shore you can find me at Twitter on Twitter at Dan Shore which is D-A-N-S-C-H-O-R-R -R. you can also on Amazon look for Final Table the novel and you can get my information on there also you can check out the book it's available in either paperback or ebook and there'll be an audio book out before the before the World Series of Poker starts so people I'd love to hear people's feedback if they check it out and read it what they think about the book and happy to talk poker or anything else with people hopefully I'll see some of you in Vegas in July uh, and are there any other books that you would uh, recommend? I mean, it doesn't poker related or, or not, just that you would that like to encourage people to uh, to check out? Uh, I can't think of anything on theme related to poker necessarily, but I, I try to read a lot. I, I love the da if people are looking, my book is a political thriller. The Daniel Silva books are great political thrillers. I would definitely recommend them. And... Um, yeah, I, I just think there's so much out there. I, I love reading different people's takes when they incorporate things in their real lives into 
what they're writing. So I'm working on another book now, although it doesn't involve poker as much, but trying to incorporate things that I've seen in my life as a prosecutor and investigator into that. So I, um, and I, if people follow me on Twitter also, I tweet about different books that I've read and I liked and, and I would recommend. So I suggest people, you know, if people want to check that out, they could see more specific ideas. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time, Dan. It was nice to meet you. And uh, whether or not I get to meet you in person, certainly hope you have a great experience out there. Thank you. It was great talking with both of you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. I enjoy listening to it a lot and I'll continue to listen to it. So thank you for having me on. Awesome. Have a good night. I know you won't.